Hey Angela, how are you going? Hi Jeffrey, I'm well, how are you? Yeah, not bad. I'm just wondering, you're in the ACT. Are you allowed to cross any state borders at the moment? Kind of at that point where I'm starting to lose track, but yes, I think we're pretty much safe to go wherever we'll have us right now, which is a great place to be in. And you? Oh, well, our borders aren't closed, but I don't think there's many places that we can go. Anyway, it changes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Source Pod. By way of introduction to the podcast, my name is Angela Lehman and I'm an education analyst with the Ligon Group. And I'm Jeffrey Smart, one of the co-founders of the Ligon Group. So our podcast comes out of our newsletter, The Source, which brings the latest insight and news about international education directly into subscribers' inboxes. And we're a small group of international education experts and we've got experience from all angles of international education, from executive offices to marketing offices to being academics within a classroom and understanding international students' experience. So what's this episode all about, Jeffrey? Well, in this episode, we talk to international education leaders from universities right across the country about the logistics of getting a pilot program up and running. And I tell you, it's really complicated choreography. We also talk about how they're navigating Australia's federal system of government. Different levels of government are exerting influence over plans to get international education up and running again in Australia in new and really interesting ways. They really are. And I think this was really came through when we started to talk to the DVCIs that are working with the two pilot programs that have been approved. When we spoke to Andrew Everett at Charles Darwin University about exactly what is involved with getting students onto planes during a pandemic. And this is what he told us. There's areas of industry that we've never had to work with before because we've always had the, the joy of being able to look at different flights and the time, the, you know, arrivals and departure times and the airfare and pick our flight. This is so different. I know South Australia is looking at a commercial flight. We've gone the charter route. We looked at KL and Singapore. It was originally going to be KL because that was a cheaper um, airport to, to use. And then we looked at the flights that students would have caught commercial flights from China to KL, they're already 85 to 90% full. So then we shifted back to uh, Singapore and despite the, the cost of the airport higher there, there's many more flights going from China into Singapore. So there's more options for students to get into Singapore at a reasonably consistent time in, a, in an envelope of time where we're not having students sitting in an airport for 20 hours, which is the worst thing that could happen. So it's been a lot of learning. So changing goalposts and uncertainty around processes and uncertainty around even geopolitics, as Andrew mentioned then, and uncertainty around the different views of different governments and government agencies have really been the context for these pilot programs. And of course, behind all this is uncertainty around the spread of the virus. So a lot of the challenges this year have revolved around navigating all these kinds of varying forms of uncertainty and trying to plot a path within it. It's really tough stuff. And Gabrielle Rowland from the University of South Australia also describes these uncertainties. It's the constantly changing goalposts, I think, were the most difficult 
part of the complexity more than the project itself because to, to just get a number of students onto a plane and to bring them here is quite a simple thing actually when you think about it. Working together with the multiple arms of government as well. So, you know, for our pilot, we, we work really closely with it's South Australian Health, it's the police department, it's the airports, it's the Premier's office. And of course, the challenge of the three universities working together very, very closely, which, you know, there's only three of us, which is great. But, you know, that's also you know, brings its own sorts of new ways of working together as well. We also asked Gabrielle about where things are up to right now. Sure. Well, look, we are actually now right in the middle of still going back out to our students who are overseas, stuck overseas. Between the three universities, we have quite a large number, probably getting close to 3,000 students. And uh, we need to see what their situation is and their willingness to return and also their suitability to return. So that's happening as we speak. And then there's a process of actually selecting those students on the basis of availability of their placements and because these are continuing students, they're the ones who are closest to completion, who need to complete. They need to be here, otherwise they cannot complete their degrees. So they've got placements or practicums or there are HDR students that are three quarters of the way through their projects. So then what happens is there's a very quick turnaround for those students to then accept an offer of a place because we're working within the caps, the arrival quarantine caps, which is a, changes every week as well. So Gabrielle's team are working to communicate with potential pilot students offshore and are also working closely with South Australia's other two universities. So selecting these students requires a kind of prioritisation of the students that are most in need of face-to-face learning and all the while working within moving and shifting quarantine caps because, as we know, the federal government is currently repatriating Australian citizens and, and our sector is very aware that we need to be patient and to wait for these citizens to also be safely in the country and to be working within those projects as well. So this uncertainty was also spoken about by all, every, pretty much everyone we spoke to, wasn't it? Lawrence Pratchett also spoke about this. So as you'll remember from our previous episode, we spoke about how in the ACT we had a, a pilot project approved in collaboration with the ANU and University of Canberra earlier in the year. Of course, it, it didn't end up going ahead due to the second wave, but the University of Canberra certainly had some interesting experiences to share with us. So this is what Lawrence said. Putting together a pilot program was always a ch- was always going to be a challenge because the environment is so uncertain and I think when we were first starting to do this in June or July we were conscious that the we still didn't know enough about how the virus was transmitted and so on. I was fortunate enough to be working though with Professor Tracy Smart from the ANU who is the former Surgeon General to the Australian Defence Force so has significant understanding of the medical implications and the way in which you control disease infection and so on. So we built a programme of work that was premised on a whole range of activities, not only the logistics of getting students from particular locations to a hub so that we could then bring them in, but also how we would deal with the quarantine aspects. And that quarantine aspect was broken down between the health and security aspects that um, obviously people focus on, but also the well-being of students. We were very particularly focused on the well-being aspects of that. And then, of course, there was that process around how how you integrate students back into the community, given the problems of community sentiment from time to time. 
that take place. So it is an extremely complex process. I know that my colleagues in other jurisdictions have been very careful to make sure that they work very closely with both their state or territory government, but also Commonwealth government agencies, all of which have to be involved in this. Some of the challenges we faced was not only the uncertainty around the virus, but the uncertainty around process and the changing views of different government agencies as to what they would support and what they wouldn't support. I think there's been time now to reflect on that so that agencies have got better at understanding what needs to happen. And I think there's general support outside of the public facing public policy environment for these pilots to go ahead. So again, this is a really complex domestic environment, but it's also complex globally. And we are navigating these kinds of uncertainties at a global level as well. In terms of, we need to take into account how the pandemic is shifting the way that students are making their decisions and the ways that they're viewing competing countries from their own viewpoint. This is Sarah Todd, the Vice President Global at Griffith University in Queensland. I think the UK is a really interesting one and lots of colleagues have said to me and people and within and outside of the university have said, oh yes, but look at the number of cases, who would want to go there? The reality is that most international students currently studying online around the world signed up for an on-campus program. Uh, depending on where they come from, and particularly if you look at South Asia, the number of cases in the UK doesn't seem that high relatively. So compared to us here in Australia, it does seem a high number of cases but for some of those students they can see that they could be on campus in a overseas country and that's what their motivation is all about on the other hand what they're not seeing anything coming out of Australia as to when I think even if we could say February March this is the date this is the plane this is what you need to do this is how much it will cost it gives people something to focus on and it gives some certainty at the moment I'm getting emails every day from current students I'm getting emails from agents and everybody else and all, and all I can say and it's true we are working with state and federal government on the safe and sustainable return of international students so I think the UK is a, is a really interesting situation as to and it really to me shows how motivated students are they want to get on a plane and they want to land regardless of what some of us might say well actually that's really not the best option from a health perspective but they're they're more focused on getting on campus so I just thought this was a great point that Sarah raised that COVID cases are all it's all relative and so if we're sitting in the Australia looking at the UK and Canadian case numbers right now from here right now it looks sky high but for someone sitting in India, for example, where cases are also going through the roof, this might look a little different. So one of the avenues of uncertainty has been around the regulations around quarantine, about what needs to be considered according to each state and territory, about how students can safely spend two weeks in quarantine after they arrive in the country. And this has been no mean feat. So that the University of Canberra and the ANU pilot, when they were planning earlier in the year, what they decided to do is draw on their own access to expertise within the university. So they employed the expertise of Professor Air Vice Marshal Tracy Smart, who is based at the ANU, and she's a renowned physician and medical administrator who has served as a commander of Joint Health Command and Surgeon General of the Australian Defence Force. And drawing on this expertise, really helped this pilot to really understand some of these logistical complexities. And this is what Lawrence Pratchett at the University of Canberra told us about this. My colleague Tracy Smart, who I referred to earlier on, refers to it as the free range 
model of quarantining, which is quite an interesting model. She um, was advisor to the AFL when they moved their teams up to Queensland for uh, so that they could play the AFL season eight. And she adopted a, a free range model there. And the principle of it is that you enclose the whole area. You allow then people to roam around that area to mingle with some obvious safety precautions in place, such as uh, social distancing at all times and wearing face masks and so on. So that, But it does mean that um, it's a much more humane way of uh, quarantining people than shutting them into a hotel room for two weeks or whatever. So Lawrence told me that working with multiple agencies around compliance, he said, quote, is quite complicated. And actually, he thinks it's more complicated than it probably needs to be. And I think this goes some way to highlighting one of the major challenges here is that we have a potential situation whereby students applying to universities in different states and territories may be subject to different conditions upon arrival, depending on where they're going. And trying to think about whether or not this will shape the way that students are going to make decisions is interesting. And also, does it complicate Australia's reputation as a whole when students are making decisions where there's different regulations and quarantine requirements according to which particular campus they're intending to come to? Geoffrey, what do you think? Oh, absolutely, Angela, it complicates the situation. I mean, for a a prospective student at the best of times, uh, considering where to study overseas is a complicated thing in in and of itself. You've got to get the application together. You've got to go through the visa requirements, let alone getting on a plane, organising accommodation in whatever city you're studying in. But to have overlaid with that the prospect that if you're a student applying to study to three universities in three different states and territories and there are three different quarantine arrangements, it really does complicate things. My um, heart really goes out to those who have campuses outside of their own state and territory jurisdiction. I mean, we know from a lot of the work that we've done for clients at the Ligon Group, looking at the ways in which interstate campuses can work, we know that there are a lot of universities that have a campus outside of their home jurisdiction. And so potentially for them, for students applying for the campus in Brisbane and Melbourne and Sydney, there's going to be different quarantine arrangements in place as well. So I guess this just all highlights the importance of coming up with a nationally coordinated reopening plan. It does. And I think, you know, it's really leading on to this point about how this sector is um, really raising to the fore some of the challenges of the federation of states and territories and about the relationship between our states and territories and the federal government. Yeah, well, Angela, that's a really great segue into our next topic, which is to look at this test of federation that our university leaders have been negotiating and navigating this year. You know, states and territories in Australia of course, have always been involved in international education with state-based strategies, destination marketing. Many states and territories have international education as an important component of economic development and have adjusted policy accordingly. The Commonwealth, of course, the federal government is in charge of most of the leaders, levers, excuse me, that enable and sustain international education. Multiple federal departments have agency, uh, all the way from immigration right through to health and almost everything in between. And COVID-19 has stress-tested these overlapping responsibilities in really new and quite interesting ways. You know, states and territories run their own health systems, and some have discovered, perhaps newly discovered, their ability to close their internal borders or their borders to other states and territories. 
the federal government, of course, is in charge of our international borders. So we found it heartening to learn that there is now greater coordination around pilot programs with a federal task force set up and coordination with the states, territories and the sector. But I must say, I find it perplexing, baffling, even a bit disappointing that this seems to have only been a recent development. However, if we're going to emphasise the positive, at least it's happening now. Andrew Everett at Charles Darwin University shared his thoughts on this new coordinated approach. Just, just some occasions where there's a commercial imperative that I think some people don't understand. And to be fair, I think one thing I've learnt from a major telephone conference um, with many people, including Prime Minister and Cabinet's office this morning, is I think we need to be better at explaining timelines and critical dates threshold dates and so on to colleagues in these other areas and not assume that they work at a pace or think in a style, not so much a pace, but think in a style that we think in. And Professor Sarah Todd up at Griffith University also welcomes the national grouping. It's a good place to start because, as we keep saying on this podcast, we need a comprehensive national reopening plan. Here's what Sarah shared. I'm a New Zealander um, and I, uh, nearly seven years in Australia and it's taken me quite a while to get my head around the state and federal split. This year that's been a learning experience even more so what can the state government prove and what can the federal government do. We've got a great example of that in Queensland where the state and federal government are, are not on the same path. So that's been interesting as well. I think and that difference that I referred to earlier and the different way that state governments, you know, I know colleagues in some universities and other states they haven't even seen the final plan because the state government has written the plan and the universities are a stakeholder in the plan uh, as opposed to ours that we submitted, you know, what we were going to do and whose accountability, whose responsibility, whose costs is, was all prepared by us in conversation with relevant departments of the state government. I think the national grouping that's got together and that set some parameters around these pilots, I think that's really good and it's brought to the table key people like DFAT and others who you really need to engage with if you're talking about charter flights, that's not a state decision and somebody has to go to that, you know, home government and discuss with them about landing a plane in their country and picking up their citizens and removing them. I think we really need to have those federal departments and I'm not just talking education, not talking Austrade, I'm talking a range of federal departments who need to be sitting there and engaged in this conversation. So I'm really pleased that that grouping was set up, but I still think I'd actually like to see, as I said earlier, a national approach to this. Now, John Maloney, Pro-Vice-Chancellor International at Deakin University, told us that he's witnessing a spirit of cooperation, which is important as we head into 2021. Here's what John told us. Federalism means that the states and the demarcation of roles and responsibilities, sometimes that's not fully aligned and that could be a little bit frustrating. But generally, as we now get to a point where Australia overall is managing the pandemic really well, we've got this positive window of planning where we're moving late into this year, pilot projects late this year or early next year and then beyond, things are in good alignment and the lines of communication are good. And there's a real, there's a sense of urgency and a spirit of cooperation. And I'm sure that we'll we'll get there. Sarah Todd sits in the state of Queensland. And that's had one of the strictest approaches to internal border management throughout this pandemic. And she deftly sums up the challenges closed state borders are presenting and the need, again, for a national approach. 
But I think it's reasonable to say and fair to say that we know that the federal government is deeply frustrated with these different state border arrangements. You know, we're seeing that definitely in Queensland, that the state border and its opening with New South Wales is hugely political. And with an election, we've seen that in Western Australia, where they've come out very clearly and said nobody, uh, let alone an international student, will be coming into Western Australia. So I think that's, a you know, if you'd said to me a year ago, we'd be dealing with most of our students being overseas and trying to get them back, kind of like, mm, maybe. Um, if you'd said, well, I wouldn't be able to come and go to Sydney. Um, <laughs> so it's really hard to tell where this will go if we don't get somehow working within the Commonwealth and who's responsible for what. But, you know, we need, whether it's the National Cabinet or whoever it is, we need somebody to take charge of this and sort it out because it's going nowhere. So you can see that the differing approaches that the states and territories are taking towards state borders are really complicating our effort as a nation to come up with a comprehensive national reopening plan. Now that we have COVID-19 infection rates well under control, I think the impetus will be there for us to seriously look at internal borders as we look to reopen international borders to international students. What do you think, Angela? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that we're sensing a little bit of hope in recent weeks, particularly around the the donut days experienced in both Victoria and in Australia generally. I think we're we're in a good position now to kind of really rethink and revise and, and kind of think about where to from here. And we really do have, as we spoke about earlier with drawing on the expertise within universities, we have been reminded through our conversations that universities really are places where our international offices are used to dealing with really quite complex programs. You know, they're used to dealing with bringing students in and about different regulations and about really managing major projects. So there's a lot of expertise there and that's really come through, I think, from our conversations with people. Yeah, look, it absolutely has, Angela. You know, international education in Australia is glorious in its sheer complexity. And those of us who are steeped in the sector, we understand how policy overlaps, the roles and responsibilities of different agencies and departments, and how to operate the business of international education in a way that meets compliance obligations. And as Angela said, one of the really interesting things university leaders have commented on was the importance of bringing solutions to the table when dealing with government, because whilst we get that complexity, you can't necessarily assume that the public officials with whom we're dealing also get that complexity in quite the same way. So Simon Writings over at Edith Cowan University who, by the way, is the new Vice President of the International Education Association of Australia, he put it this way. One of the things that we really need to focus on doing is making sure that as we begin to see what the requirements might be for the resumption of transport, travel and international students coming back into Australia, we, we need to find ways to be going to government with well-explained solutions to the challenges that go with doing that. So I think we need to avoid the temptation to be going back to government, trying to hurry government up to do some things that we would like to see them do by reminding them of the scale of the business. They completely understand that. What I think we need to be doing is going to government and saying that we are extremely alert to all of the likely requirements pre-departure, post-arrival, during travel, during subsequent studies that you will need assistance with. 
and as a united international education sector, we can problem solve, we can troubleshoot. Andrew Everett at Charles Darwin University describes this complexity as well. But overall, he's been pleased how well everyone has played together. Despite the inevitable difficulties and tensions, he believes that university international leaders and governments at all levels are learning to have confidence and a level of trust in one another. And like just about everybody else we spoke to for this podcast, he's also pleased to see the federal government now playing a coordinating role. He's been deeply engaged with this task force, and here's a little bit of what he told us. In the National Code and, and you know, the ESOS Act, all those sorts of things, we can deal with that and just please just have confidence in us that we're not doing the wrong thing. We, we know what we're doing and we'll work that out on the sides, which we've done. There has to be that level of confidence in each other that just enables things to move along. Otherwise, if I put that through the Northern Territory Government, the greatest respect to them, They would have to learn all about the the National Code, ESOS Act, everything else, and then a week later send the request off to Michael and then it's just the way things have to work. Having said that, I I really need to put my thoughts on the record, my appreciation on the record for the way the Northern Territory Government, uh, from the Chief Minister down through to staff in Canberra, Minister Tian, the Prime Minister, have been personally involved. It's just been brilliant and it really shows, I think, how people can work together to get solutions to to what is a major problem, just step by step, working through the issues and getting a solution. So, Angela, you understand how complicated the policy environment is governing international education in Australia. And I think, I don't know about you, but I'm really heartened to see this idea of people coming together and trying to solve problems together as opposed to being immovable objects who just want to get in the way and and be bureaucrats. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this has been a year of challenges as we've been hearing constantly, really, since April this year. But it's also been a year of opportunities. And I think, you know, as bumpy as this ride may be and may continue to be for some time, I think that, you know, we are starting to get somewhere in terms of learning about collaboration, cross-government agencies, and really, to be honest, that the important role of this sector across the economy and across communities as well. Now, Angela, I know that we talk a lot about the complex choreography that the university leaders we've been speaking to have had to engage in this year, and it really is complicated, and they really are learning to do new things. But one of the things that came through, in some ways, for international education people, it's been a bit of a walk in the park. People in international education are experienced, after all, in working across complex jurisdictions. They have to meet their regulatory obligations here in Australia and in any international jurisdiction in which they operate. And they're adept at managing highly complex relationships and projects from transnational education partnerships to global networks of education agents. So while it's been hard and while they've had to learn new things, It has in some ways been, as I said, a walk in the park. If not a walk in the park, it is certainly not a challenge that is beyond the inherent skills of international education people. Simon Writings from Edith Cowan University put it this way. One of the things that as as a sector we've done now for very many years is deal with really quite complex human logistics anyway. You know, we are in fact providing one of the most complex high risk, high cost, high engagement service products that anyone would ever buy in their life. We have very integrated 
service bundles of education and accommodation. We work with agent networks and purpose-built student accommodation providers. So we maybe underestimate the fact that we're actually pretty good at logistics and have been for quite a long time. Gabrielle Rowland at UniSA, she's now, she and the team actually, are now knee-deep in implementing the very carefully planned logistics now that the South Australia pilot is underway. And she suggested something very similar when we spoke with her. You know, it's interesting, this question on logistics. You know, universities are really well set up to handle complex projects. And you think about what we do anyway, you know, setting up campuses overseas and doing those things. So we've got you know, huge amounts of experience in projects that have got all sorts of legislative and international implications and all sorts of things. And as Simon Ridings pointed out, working with government is what international education people do and we're good at it. There's a really developed functional skill set that has developed over years within an industry. And the other thing is there's a lot of experience and a lot of savviness in also working with government agencies, working with um, compliance, understanding public policy. There are providers in the sector who are actually as good at public policy analysis as any sector in the economy. So we're looking forward to governments enabling borders to reopen. Government should be looking forward to us working with them to enable them to do it as soon as possible as well. So I guess, Angela, that in, in some ways, whilst people across the sector are having to do new things and have relationships with agencies all the way from police through to immigration, through to health departments in multiple places, in a way, it's not that much of a step up from the complex work that they do in order to build and sustain the international education sector in this country. I think you're right. What this has highlighted is not necessarily that we don't have the skills as a sector because we know that these conversations that we've been talking about have demonstrated that the skill base is there, but I think maybe people in the sector realise is that one place we could probably improve on is our communication with various government agencies and letting them know what kind of timeframes we're working to and, and what kind of restrictions and priorities we have as a sector so that the government agencies and people that we're dealing with that are not familiar with working with the international education sector can have the best handle on it that they can when they're trying to make decisions to help us. Yeah, absolutely right. (laughs) Well, shall we talk about what's coming up in our next episode? So next episode, I think we're going to follow on nicely from this one. In this episode, we've spoken a lot about what we could call hard borders. So we've spoken about state and territory borders and the physical land border of Australia and how we're going to navigate, negotiate that safely for our students and for our communities during the pandemic. Next episode, we'd like to talk about what we call the soft border, and that is really about public sentiment and the mood in Australia that can facilitate students coming back into our country as well. So we're talking about public sentiment and we're talking about sentiment within universities and within general student bodies as well. Yeah, and we also look at business sentiment. I think that occasionally we can forget that we have allies out there in this small and big business community because, after all, international students are not just locked away in classrooms and student accommodation. They live in the real economy. They're customers in the real economy. They spend money in businesses small and large. So we talk about business sentiment as well. Well, we've reached the end of episode two. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Source Pod on iTunes, or you can follow The Ligon Group on LinkedIn or Twitter, or you can visit The Ligon Group at theligongroup.com. 